You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have Dr. Sumit Maskar here to talk to us about colonial India in the 1800s, the caste system, and the intersection between those two. Most Americans, they're not at all familiar with the caste system. So can you just explain what what a Dalit is? <laughs> okay, well, all societies have some form of social structure which govern those societies, economy and politics. And likewise, India also has one, but it's a very unique one. And because it goes back to very long, you know, historically, where Dalits, now it has become, you know, very popular word now in also in the US, I believe. So where Dalits stand in this social hierarchy is if you want to think of caste as a system of five blocks. So Dalits are on the fifth block, which is at the lowest end of the caste hierarchy. But the more unique thing about Dalits is that the all the four layers about them are touchable castes, which means they can touch each other and None of them will be polluted. But Dalits face that absolute uh, vulnerable position uh, who are at the bottom of that particular hierarchy, who face extreme forms of untouchability, which can also mean you know exclusion from education historically, which is what we will be discussing. But also it has a major impact on uh, your economic choices, the kind of work you want to do, your marital choices, uh, the kind of partner you would like to choose, um, and other cultural dimensions, and also in your social relationships in the society. So that's where Dalits are, if that's what you would like to know. That's actually a really good introduction to what we're going to talk about. How exactly did the system of education begin in, I guess in, in your paper, you'd start talking about the 1820s with the Protestant missionaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, see, uh, if you want to specifically talk about Dalits and education, so there are obviously, you know, there are different forms of education that were prevalent uh, before the, you know, the colonial and the, colo- and the missionary education. Uh, that began in the Indian subcontinent. So there were forms of religious forms through which different kinds of educations were given. But as you you know saw in the paper that we have written, uh, certain kinds of education such as logic, more to do with philosophy, those kind of subjects were pretty much uh, reserved for the Brahmins. And some kind of technical, uh, like accounting, these were kind of subjects that were meant for the, the landed caste. Um, so it was a very uh, typical kind of education system that was there before the missionaries came in. As far as Dalits are concerned, obviously missionary becomes one of the important sources of education, accessing the education. Uh, then you have military as a very important source of education. So all those Dalits who became part of the the British military system, the military regime in India, uh, they were by default also given access to the educational institutions. And that's when uh, they got access to education. And then 
from 1848, uh, you have a newer kind of initiatives which were started by Indians themselves. And what today we would like to you know talk, and I would like to rather talk, is this particular kind of educational initiatives that were started, uh, which is eventually led to the democratization of education, uh, not just to the Dalits, but also to women of all castes. So women, uh, this is one thing which usually uh, people do not really talk about, is that uh, women of all castes were also excluded from education. Uh, so these, of course, there are missionary initiatives that were taken, but this is a very important moment in the history of education in India, uh, but also for women's education, as well as the education of those we are known as the, the laboring caste, which are the Shudras, uh, and the untouchables, the Dalits. How did the education movement among the Dalits begin around the 1840s? It's 1848 is the first time, obviously, there is a school. Uh, so what we want to cover in this particular discussion um, is the first school that was started. And this is not uh, when it was started for Dalits, actually. This was initially meant for Dalits as well. Uh, together with what is known as the Shudra caste, which are on the fourth um, level of the caste hierarchy. So it is that. Uh, so when we refer to Dalits, it's mostly the untouchables, and Shudras are modern day other backward castes. Um, so these two groups were, you know, the, the biggest groups which were left out uh, in terms of education. So as far as Dalits are concerned, the schools are pretty much start a little later. 1848 is the first time when somewhere the Indian efforts to start schools and to educate girls begins. However, this particular schools, are, you know, has a, a little, you know, short-lived story because uh, the ones who started these schools, the Jyotira Phule and Savitri Bai Phule, uh, they had a fallout with Jyotira Phule's parents. And pretty much they are kicked out of the house because they are doing something very radical for their times. And therefore, they had to leave their own house and then the school is shut down. It's only in 1851 that they actually begin to you know, start new school and then they are successful. Now, when it comes to Dalits, so the 1851 school I just mentioned, um, this was specifically meant for girls of all castes and also uh, there were boys uh, in those schools. Uh, but what we don't have in those schools are the untouchables or the Dalits. Uh, Dalits are excluded from those schools because of the norms of those times. So despite the best efforts of Fules, it does not really become an all-caste school in that sense. Uh, so what we have is in 1852, this is when the first school starts specifically for Dalits, uh, boys as well as girls. And this is where one can actually see a major beginning. So, and we also mentioned uh, in this particular discussion uh, in our paper, of course, there are efforts from the missionary, which uh, predates 1852, uh, which also catered to Dalits in different parts of Western India. But an, uh, an educational effort started by Indians themselves. Uh, this is the earliest uh, recorded um, schools for specifically meant for Dalits, which also had Dalits, you know, part of running the schools, 
who take a very important part um, in the everyday day-to-day affairs of those schools. Uh, because these are also Jyotira Phule's classmates from the missionary schools where he also studied. In your paper, you mention the British judicial commissioner who came to inspect the school in Pune, and mm-hmm. he said he found it in an upper room with the doors shut for fear yeah. of persecution. So th- there was a lot of community resistance. Like, what kind of violence was targeted at the schools? No, I think uh, there was a massive hostility because uh, one has to understand that we are talking about mid-19th century and caste norms were very much stronger. Not to say that they are not strong now, but they were absolute strong and they were very much supported by the pre-colonial state. So it is only in the 1818 that the British take over from the Marathas, uh, but which is ruled by the Brahmin Peshwas. Uh, so the Maratha uh, regime actually declines from 1818 onwards. But up until then, the state pretty much patronized the upper castes, pretty much, and more specifically, the Brahmins. So uh, exclusion was very much systematic to that particular system, uh, which took its inspiration from the caste system. And therefore, anything to do against that also evoked a very violent kind of response. So, for example, um, the kind of violence uh, that has been, you know, it's very popular in the anti-caste movement, especially in the Western India, um, about these, uh, the kind of challenges these schools faced, particularly. Uh, So the kind of incident that, you know, you just mentioned. um, So there were uh, obviously violence that was happening on, the, on the teacher who would go to these particular schools. So she had to be protected while she was going to those schools. And also from the wider society, which is mostly the upper caste society, uh, which was very much against um, these kind of schools. So it was not society in that sense. You'll have to make a distinction of who is actually opposing uh, within the society. So obviously there are um, challenges of attracting students from, say, the Dalit community from the other backward castes like the Shudras uh, to those schools. But um, there is a massive kind of resentment um, and hostility uh, towards these particular schools. How did the hostilities manifest itself? And also, like, what did the school do in response to the hostilities? No, I mean, there was an absolute hostility was very simple. There was physical violence against the teacher herself. Oh, okay. yes, sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, so there is no, yeah, there is no, it's not a philosophical hostility where people are argumenting about that. Like, you know, it's not some public debate about hostility. I mean, there was absolute violence against the teacher. And then there were violent attempts made against them uh, so that they are dissuaded from these particular um, initiatives. Uh, but obviously, um, these, uh, the, the Jyotira Fule and Savitri Bai Fule and their associates, were very much aware of this hostility uh, to the fact that in the first place, when they started the first school, they were uh, they actually pressurized the parents of Jyotira Phule to tell uh, his son and his daughter-in-law to actually shut down the school. And when there was argumentation, uh, the, they had they were kicked out from the house. So there is a massive social pressure uh, on Jyotira Phule and Savitri Bai Phule from the very beginning. 
So they are aware of this particular hostility towards their uh, educational efforts. One thing that I found interesting is that originally Jyotira Phule wanted to have an integrated school where girls from all castes come. But then, this, since there was so much community resistance, he decided to focus on schools only for the girls from the untouchable caste. Yeah, part of the, you know part of this reason was his own um, associates who came from the Brahmin community. Uh, they were not um, you know, very welcoming to this particular initiative. So he was also working within certain kind of limitations. But as I just said, like 1851 is when they start the first successful effort. And 1852, they start specifically, uh, school specifically meant for Dalits, both, both boys as well as girls. So he was also at the same time fighting against the society, uh, which is very much a Brahmin dominated society. Uh, in terms of politics and control over the economy and social and cultural institutions. But at certain level, even his own associates were not necessarily call, uh, you know, crossing what we call as the, un- in the pollution line, which is where uh, the untouchables are. So they are on the fifth block, if you were to imagine a building. And uh, so as, as far as his own associates are concerned, they were fine educating up to the Shudras, which is today's other backward castes. Uh, but they were not extremely comfortable uh, with uh, the education of the untouchables. So the Jyotira Phule called the special school for untouchables Mahar Mangs, right? Yeah. It was a society that was uh, created. It was a society for the promotion of the education of Mahars and Mangs. Yeah. So around 1858, they had almost 250, they had about 258 students. And that's actually pretty impressive in such a short time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These were absolutely impressive uh, given the time, but also the given social and cultural environment that um, they actually managed to pull this through uh, in terms of uh, not only just starting the schools, but also sustaining them through all these years. And I, I guess what is interesting is how the teachers were also, like, I guess how the untouchability broke into the teachers, like that they were excommunicated if they, if people in, in uh, society thought they were getting too close to the untouched, to the Dalits. And that to me is very interesting. No, but I think it's uh, the point itself is that um, even educating Brahmin girls was considered as scandalous. Okay, so it's not just untouchables. Uh, that particular time, because today we do not imagine that you know Brahmin girls cannot go to schools or take education, but back then it was considered scandalous. So this particular initiative, what they started to uh, educate girls from all castes, was even considered far more scandalous. Then they went even one step further by educating the untouchables, the Dalits, which is even more scandalous. So they were actually pretty much creating a massive social upheaval in the society by starting these schools. Okay, so in 1888, Jyotirav Phule had lost government funding 
And like he started to morph more into an anti-caste activist, right? No, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think uh, because it's a short podcast and there are so many, you know, important questions. Uh, so it's not that he's losing funding and then he becomes anti-caste. I think that point needs to be really clarified. Uh, the fact that he he begins to educate girls from Brahmin girls to other backward caste girls to untouchable boys and untouchable girls, that itself is a massive anti-caste activity. Because this is going against the caste norms. That the, What does the caste norms suggest is that these people should not be taking education. And he's going against the caste norms. So that is laying the foundation for anti-caste movement. Otherwise, it becomes something like, you know, that he's somehow he's losing money and then he becomes angry and then he becomes anti-caste. So that will be actually belittling uh, his kind of efforts and the courage he showed uh, in mid-19th century. So it's not, uh, one has to be uh, taken into account that starting a school today might sound like a very simple thing. You go and you, you know, pick up a land, you do some school and it's not a great deal that it was um, compared to uh, what actually happened in the mid-19th century. Uh, so starting a school itself was a big thing in terms of going against the social norms. As I said, like today, Brahmin girl going to school, nobody will actually even be surprised. But there, back then, it was a major um, thing because it was going against the social norms. And therefore, one has to really, you know, think about uh, that particular time within which those schools were started. But also more than schools, it's not just any kind of random school which is started anywhere in the world. Uh, but school as a system um, which actually democratizes education and which definitely the caste rules were not necessarily in favor of. And that itself, uh, our understanding is that lays the foundation for the anti-caste movement. So this is where they begins to challenge each and every caste norms, which you know we can discuss as we go along. Yeah, yeah. can you expand how they challenged each and every caste norms, I guess, and what they, I guess, what happened? <laughs> no, I see, the first thing is you start schools, obviously, uh, which is prohibited to you and not only prohibited. So if you, uh, you know, in our essay, we actually describe the conditions what were prevalent before the um, establishment of British rule in India. And if you look at the poems which were are written by Savitri by Phule, and then there is a testimony of one of the Dalit female student or from one of those schools which were started by Phule, they tell you what kind of problems were there uh, before the British came. Okay, and they clearly point to the fact that the the, the untouchables obviously were not even allowed to listen to the verses. Okay. And there was, uh, there was no way all these women, obviously, but also uh, other backward castes and Dalits could actually take up education. So these were, there were massive um, kind of uh, challenges that have been, uh, you know, posed by those particular Preshwa rule, which was uh, ruled by the, by the Chitpawan Brahmins in Western India. Uh, I think one of these, um, you know, there is this uh, particular poem which actually you know, tells a little bit better. 
uh, where, which is written by Savitri by Fule, and I just you know um, read these four lines, and which is which, where she says that the Peshwas, the follower of Manusmriti, are dead and gone, and the British rule has come. The restrictions imposed by Manusmriti to take education have been removed. The knowledge givers, the British, have arrived. So take the advantage. Such an opportunity has not arrived in thousand years. Okay, um, so that's Savitri Bhaiphule, and then there is a student who is, you know, writing an essay um, in, you know, one of their classes, and which was then really read out for publicly, which was also published in the newspaper. That also becomes one of the first account of a Dalit woman, which where she says that, you know, oh, the power. Poverty and illness-stricken mahars and mangs, you are diseased people. So give your mind the medicine of knowledge. Become wise. You will remove evil thoughts from your mind. You will turn into ethical and moral person. And your animal-like tendencies, day and night exploit. Sorry, animal-like day and night exploitation will stop. Okay. So these are kind of massive restrictions which they are clearly highlighting in their poetry, in their essays. That before the arrival of British, you have massive restrictions on that, and with the arrival of British, there are things are changing because the, all the power structures are changing, and within that particular instability, you have uh, people like Savitri Bai Phule and Jyoti Rafule. They make use of that um, particular uh, changing power structure to make an effort to start educational institutions uh, and specifically targeting for Dalit boys and girls and also for girls across caste. And this is a very major intervention um, at the beginning of, um, you know, colonial, uh, colonial rule in the country, uh, which does not get talked about. Now, there are two more points um, as far as how are they challenging. So obviously one is you start schools, you educate, but what, what do you educate with people? And this is also very important. What kind of, um, you know, uh, what kind of uh, curriculum that is taught inside the schools? When it comes to Dalits and, uh, you know, also other backward caste, you will see across India, there are certain kind of education that is being um, propagated that, okay, these people should be given more technical skills, uh, what we call that, you know, the industrial kind of training, Against this particular kind of you know understanding, um, the schools which were started by Fules were actually far more advanced in terms of uh, you know teaching them absolutely uh, important subjects such as grammar, writing, geography. There are certain kind of Modi script, uh, so and the history of India. So you have this wide-ranging critical understanding. Uh, of knowledge that is being taught to those uh, particular uh, particular schools. So this is, you know, one of the important ways they are doing. Uh, the other part, which is more important, is that this has a major impact on the society at large. Because what happens is that the ritual position of the Brahmins in particular is challenged. So there are particular rituals where Brahmins were invited historically that begins to stop. And of course, there are other problems that emerge um, because these people are then ostracized. But there are massive changes within the society. The way marriages uh, are functioned, the way um, the different kind of rituals are taking place, they are transformed completely. 
so it's so education becomes one of the means uh, but through education they are also reaching to wider society uh, in terms of um, organizing protests on various issues um, eventually they also reach bombay and you know one of their followers also uh, forms the one of the earliest um, uh, workers organization in the country the mill hands association uh, was started somewhere in 1890s and so you have a wider impact on these various aspects and that's really interesting how it just kind of ballooned from there hello we're asking you to support the cast system the podcast system we know that's terrible and we assure you that once we get enough subscribers we will never do puns again so do your part and go to historically.substack.com and sign up for our newsletter and support our program thank you eventually it also ballooned into an anti colonial resistance too through this in the pre-colonial times um this was in the maratha kingdom was it the same in say the bombay i mean mysore kingdom or the or the state of bengal or were who who were, which were ruled by muslims like or the caste situation the same or was it different no i think it's uh so you have uh, various regimes and muslim it's not in some way it's not a hindu or muslim thing we all know that there were 500 plus uh, uh, you know principalities in the country uh, so these were small 500 plus kingdoms uh, in the country um, this when we talk of bombay presidency uh, it's a pretty huge territory mm, it's like the present day maharashtra uh, gujarat so that's a big territory we don't have um, similar educational efforts that have been taking place in the state of bengal in that sense but there are different kinds of um, efforts that are being uh, taken uh, but the response to colonial um, rule is more or less similar when it comes to anti caste organizations so all the anti caste efforts if you look at um, one of the interesting things that has really come in the recent years is to see that the all the anti caste organizations are compromising with colonialism and this is the view uh, propagated by those who are on the left or the liberal kind of spectrum uh, which is a incorrect view uh, the point itself uh, uh, we are trying to also establish uh, in this paper that has been written on the educational efforts it shows a very clear trajectory that what they are necessarily celebrating is not the colonial rule as such what they are celebrating is the opportunity that has been generated by the instability that has been created because of the arrival of britishers and that particular instability allows them to do something which they were not you know even in position to think about doing uh, before the arrival of the colonial and in that sense it's not necessarily so just one minor point uh, so what they essentially do is make use of those particular opportunities but as you see that when by the time we reach 1880s there is a hunter commission which is you know here to talk about educational reforms and this is where uh, uh, jyotiraj phule goes and submission before that commission 
uh, where he's extremely critical of the way uh, educational system, the funding has been more prioritized for higher education and these kind of issues. And he's the he's one of the earliest you know person to uh, advocate for a free and compulsory education already in 1880s. Uh, so in that sense, one cannot really look at whether, you know, its criticality only begins in 1880s. Uh, in some sense, uh, yeah, that has to be really looked into a different context about uh, how do we talk about colonialism. Yeah. It seems like the British were opportunists. Like in Bengal, they actually helped solidify the caste system based on what they were like the Jagannathan Temple in Bengal collaborated with the British and the British helped ossify that caste system. So it seems like they took advantage of whatever was necessary to subjugate people. So I guess each area the British behaved differently. So it would be a mistake to think that the education movement would be a a pro-colonial movement as opposed to like a pro-Dalit movement, right? Uh, no, no, I think, see, I think only a minor you know, clarification I'd like to give. Uh, I think the British colonialism pretty much was similar in most parts of the, of the country, okay? Um, and they also collaborated uh, with Brahmins. They also promoted them. So, you know, um, in our own essay, we are documenting how they prioritize Brahmins, uh, educational institutions, they gave special funding. So they retained all the kind of privileges that were there before their own rule. Okay. Uh, what is important to look at here um, is that, you know, there is this common understanding also very, you know, it's very simplistic understanding that somehow Britishers are coming and subjugating the population, uh, which it is the case. Nobody is even disputing. But what in doing so, what they do is that they uh, create crisis for the previous regime. So all those rulers who were there ruling before the British took over, they themselves were very ruthless rulers. Okay, And therefore, how different groups respond to the arrival of British rule has to be looked into uh, you know, different case studies. So obviously, one will have to do a you know, detailed case study of what exactly happened in Bengal in the, that particular period I'm talking about. But um, to see this particular uh, role in black and white uh, is not very helpful. This is not to say that the colonialism was there to do any social work. Nobody is saying that they are not, neither they are doing any social work, neither they are here for you know, whatever social upliftment of any people. They are here to do the business, which is understandable. Um, but what is important for us to understand, how do we understand the impact of colonialism now? And that impact has to be looked at from you know, different quarters. And one of those quarters is to look at what kind of impact this has. Because what we assume, or there is a tendency to assume, that somehow all those oppressors and oppressed who were there before the British came, suddenly they became equal and they were not equal. And that has to be really taken into account. Yeah, of, of course they were not equal because the British were opportunistic. And so these schools were like early foundations, which later ballooned much bigger. And I'm trying to understand how the concept of untouchability itself, like did it change because of these schools? And how? 
Well, the concept, I mean, the thing is that um, untouchability takes new forms wherever it goes. So what exactly education does, it opens up newer kind of opportunities for that particular group. So educational education, as we all know, is one of the important means through which people achieve social and economic mobility. So obviously you have more people who not only went to the schools, but also then following schools, they would then obviously claim better positions in the society. Some of them became teachers in the same schools they were started, but also the colonial state, the British colonial state needed a massive army of workforce to work uh, for the colonial state, whether it was the their own postal system, you have railways that were introduced from 1850s onwards, uh, and you have really wide-ranging infrastructure that was needed to run the colonial state. So then you definitely have a certain kind of mobility of that particular group. It's a very uh, tiny mobility of a very small section of population, uh, but that is when it begins to take place. Ambedkar, who is the foremost, uh, uh, you know, anti-caste voice in the history, um, in the last 200 years of history, you know, the civil rights voice of this country. Uh, his father was also part of the military. His father took education in the military. He himself went to the schools which were run by military. Are you talking about Dr. Ambedkar? Yeah, yeah, yeah Dr. Ambedkar, yeah. Okay. So his father was a military official as well. And so obviously it, be, it benefited um, him in terms of gaining uh, access to schools. So this is where you have a, you know, a generational slow transformation, but that has been taking place uh, since these particular schools were started as well. Yeah. Dr. Ambedkar was one of the most inspirational figures. And here in New York, in Columbia University, they actually have a bust um, dedicated yeah, to yeah, him. Yeah. So can you just quickly talk about him <laughs> for the audience who are not um, familiar? Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, now Dr. Ambedkar is uh, now, uh, you know, also increasingly getting, uh, in, you know, uh, more familiarity in the United States context. Uh, but he was, uh, he also belonged to one of the untouchable castes, uh, which is known as Mahars uh, in Western India. Uh, his father uh, worked in the British military. And he also gained access to, uh, you know, schools and then on the scholarship of one of the, you know, one of the princely states in Western India. Uh, he went to Columbia University to do his master's and then a PhD in economics and then uh, did his second PhD from the London School of Economics. And then he did uh, obtained his barrister degree from uh, the Grays in, in London. So that is a big trajectory and uh, he has been the most uh, important voice for the articulation of the problems uh, faced by the Dalits uh, and he played an important role in stipulating the kind of provisions uh, for education and political representation, uh, which has been very important uh, in the post-independence period. Yeah, especially his foundational works about like who the Shudras are. Uh, and also he helped draft the India's constitution, which had a lot of aggressive, I guess in America, they call it affirmative action programs, but in India, they call it reservation systems. So 
yeah, he had a huge effect on the greater, like on Indian society. So I did not realize that this had a ripple effect later on. Um, Is there anything else you'd like to discuss that we forgot to discuss during this time? That uh, we cannot really sometimes think that, uh, you know, somehow there is this British colonial rule. They are there, they're oppressive. That's all there. But one has to look at also the kind of use that was made uh, by the destabilization of that, uh, let's say, the Brahmin Peshwa rule in Western India. Uh, That uh, things might have changed in different ways, but because of that destability, um, that kind of opportunities were provided. And it was kind of negotiation with the state. So in some way, all those particular groups, whether these are Dalits, um, other backward castes, the Shudras, as we know, like other backward castes today, and the Brahmins, they were all negotiating with the colonial state in some way for different kinds of facilities and privileges. And I think colonialism has to be really um, thought through these particular kind of um, you know, case studies where what kind of impact this had on the society and how did different groups respond to it. Uh, so just one last point here is that um, when we look at different groups responding, we are not saying that people are somehow celebrating colonialism or they are really anti-colonial in that sense. Uh, one has to really uh, see what kind of uh, ex- pre-colonial relations are there. And only then we can actually put people in boxes, okay, these are communities or groups which are anti-colonial, these are pro-colonial in some way. Um, the entire population was anti-colonial. But of course, as long as the Britishers were there, everyone was negotiating with the colonial state. So that has to be kept in mind. Thank you so much for coming. What are you working on as your next project after this? I'm just curious. (laughs) Well, this is um, a side project, honestly speaking. So my main project um, is on the Bombay textile mills. So I look at the closure of these large-scale cotton textile mills in Bombay, which began to close down in the 1990s, and the last textile mill closed down in 2006. And it really um, affected 90,000 workers. Uh, Slightly more than 90,000 workers were jobless. um, And it has a long history, again, going back to mid-19th century. That's when the first textile mill was started. Uh, So this is a book really I am now finalizing on how do workers uh, from these cotton textile mills respond to joblessness and how the closure of textile mills um, had a major impact on the Bombay city uh, and what is happening to the Bombay city as such. So this is like um, one important project that I would like to finish. And uh, yeah, so this is also one of the important projects that I picked up um, after my PhD. So the textile mills project was my doctoral thesis, uh, which I completed at the University of Oxford uh, in the Department of Sociology. And later I had a couple of postdoctoral fellowships um, in Germany at the Center for Modern Indian Studies uh, at the University of Göttingen. And this is where uh, one of the projects was on the education, and uh, which is where I uh, began working uh, with my colleague, Dr. Jana Shurenev. Uh, she is based in Berlin now. And this is a paper which came out of uh, the discussions with her. And that's how we uh, started working on this paper. 
maybe i will you know also pursue this particular um, you know line of inquiry of education and write something else but as of now the absolute immediate task is to wrap up the book on the bombay textile workers that would be very interesting for me personally so when you finish we would love to have you back on the show to talk about that book because that part is incredibly interesting and very important i think and are you available on twitter or or any other social media <laughs> i i am on twitter and facebook like okay i'll put the links below i just followed you on twitter i just realized um Well, thank you so much for coming. I I know it's um around dinner time for you guys in Delhi. So, I really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us um here with the time difference and hopefully we can have you back again soon. <laughs> This was yes. fantastic. Thanks a lot. Have a great evening. Yeah, you too. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W R E C K T E C H. And thank you for listening to our show.